So how does one go about choosing a therapist? As a mostly seasoned professional in the field of mental health, I am embarrassed to say that I wasn't entirely sure. Until now. Today, we talk with Dylan Kirsch and Anisha Williams, both licensed marriage and family therapists in the fair county of Marin. Together, we discuss how to effectively wade through the swamp of available clinicians, but also the elements that make for a strong therapeutic fit. We take a dive into everything from race, gender, socioeconomic status to spiritual orientation, as well as provide detailed information on the dizzying array of available therapeutic modalities, motivational interviewing, EMDR, and something called somatic therapy, and how to know which one may be the best fit for you. We also discuss how to navigate the cost of therapy. What is a sliding scale? How do you approach your insurance company for reimbursement if you are out of network? My name is Benjamin Russick, licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is my podcast, Look, Just Tell Me What to Do. All right, folks, I am here with the fabulous Anisha Williams, marriage and family therapist. Hello, Anisha. Hi. I am here with the equally fabulous Dylan Kirsch, MFT. How are you, Dylan? I'm good. And we are here in the amazing, fantastic, beautiful, stupendous, lovely, luscious, bucolic Marin County <laughs> and <laughs> at uh, Dylan's house. He was gracious enough to have me come up here and do this podcast. What we're doing today is how to choose a therapist. I, I was wanting to do this podcast because I need to find a therapist because I'm losing my mind mm. uh, because I've got too many clients. And ben, I'm full. I'm sorry. I can't. I can't take you. <laughs> you right can't now. take me. No, <sighs> you bastard. Yeah. Are you full, Anisha? I am full. That would be a dual relationship, though, wouldn't it? Because I kind <laughs> of know Anisha. So let's just start with basic introductions. Anisha, how do I know you? I believe we met at Bayside Marin. We probably did. ten years ago. Ten years ago. That time. I was a therapist in the intensive outpatient program, yeah. and you were up top in residential. Yeah. And Dylan, how do I know you? Well, I guess for those people who didn't check out our previous podcast, <laughs> uh, where we went fully into that in great detail, yeah, uh, you were a uh, employee at a sober living environment, a sober yes. living home where I lived when I was in early sobriety oh, many wow. years ago. And we have maintained that. a professional and personal connection since. Yeah. Oh, wow. And now we are esteemed colleagues. Yeah. yeah well, and, and what the great thing is, is that Dylan is one of the very few I say this with some trepidation, male heterosexual therapists that I know. And I say that because it's uh. it's a niche. It's There's not very many. <laughs> it's one of the few places where we are, uh, Value. We are, we are not like the, yeah, the, the, dominant, the dominant thing. In, yeah. I have three very good friends that are male therapists, Dylan included. Yeah. And But I don't know a lot more. Okay, <laughs> I don't know true. a lot more male therapists. Yeah, they're rare. You've chosen well with the three of us. I have. White, white and straight as <laughs> yes. well. They are white and yeah. straight. Yeah. I am yeah. not white and kind of crooked. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, so what are people to do when they are out there in the world losing their shit? They know they need mental health care and they don't know how to get it. There's Psychology Today, which is a swamp of mm -hmm. therapist profiles. Mm hmm and then they, what if they, what if there is no word of mouth? What if they don't know anybody in the field? What are people to do? Mm. I think a really good place to start is asking people that you know if they're in therapy and if they have therapists and if they like their therapists and if so, why, why not? I think it's really good to get just kind of an example of what is going on out there because some people are so unfamiliar with therapy that they don't even know what happens in the room. Right. And so it's always nice to just ask other people if you're comfortable, if they're in therapy and if so, what does that look like? And how did you find this person? And what do you like about them? And so I think it's a really good idea to start with what is therapy? So that's one way is that you find one person who really loves their therapist and talk about that. And then, well, if that therapist can't see you, then then maybe he or she will know someone right. who can. Mm -hmm. Good therapists tend to stick together. I like to think right. that. I feel like there's this difference between how people choose a therapist versus how I would suggest mm. people choose a therapist. Just like with dating People tend to just jump in through a friend. Oh, you'd like, you'd like, you know, Johnny. A lot of people do that, but they don't really have what they're looking for really solid. They just kind of go with it. And then they end up disappointed over and over again. I think that we could pretty, pretty well here in this podcast come up with a, a checklist for people to go through in terms of um, things they should consider before they even start the process. Um, because right. on Psychology Today, you're just reading these one or two paragraph blurbs. And usually what people do is they just kind of pick up a vibe. Oh, I read your thing. I, it, it was like 
the person's like a, a looser, more casual person. Oh, or they're maybe new agey, mm-hmm. or maybe they are very structured and rigid and they hear, you know, a very, I do X, Y, Z therapy, very structured. And, and I think people go with that, but I don't, I don't think that's the best way to pick a therapist is what's sure. comfortable for you. Right. The, the worst way is to kind of sit there and look at the menu like you're at a Chinese restaurant. Mm-hmm. You know how mm-hmm. they have the little Chinese characters <laughs> yeah. next to the thing? You know what I've heard? I've heard that actually those characters are actually a totally separate menu oh. for like yeah. Chinese people My that eat. My friend Emily is Malaysian and speaks several Asian languages. And when we go to an Asian shout restaurant. Shout out Emily. She, shout out <laughs> Emily Lai, Murray, love you. Um, she orders things that are never on the menu. Right? Yeah. She has like a conversation with them. It'll be in Malaysian or some other language that I don't know. And we get this entire feast of things that were not available to I want to go out to eat with there. her. Yeah. She's, she's a chef as well. That's are you single, awesome. Ben? What? Shout out Masak Masak. What? Are you single? Because we're I'm making a joke because we're talking about dating I'm perpetually single, yes. <laughs> Let's not talk about that. Well, we don't have time. Well, by choice, maybe. Serially single? Serially monogamous? Anyway, there's no joke there. Okay, so um, it's not like a menu. You can't just sit down. That's the, probably the worst way is to kind right. of like get blinded by all the information. So you right. want to set up a process. What do you mean, Dylan? What kind of process? So I feel like there's two major tracks. Ah, three. The first is demographics, things like race, sexuality, gender, et cetera, matter to you. And they very well may matter to you. And it may be very important that they matter to you, depending on your experience. The second is in the classic psychoanalytic psychodynamic model, you know, there's this concept of transference, which is when we have a therapist, we transfer on to them generally the issues that we haven't worked out or resolved yet with our parent of that same gender. It's not a perfect science, but it's a general way to think about it. So if you're somebody who has a lot of issues in relationships with men, I would think a male therapist might be a better choice for you right now and vice versa. And then the third is the specific issues that you're dealing with. And then thinking about the orientation of that therapist. So EMDR, which is eye movement, desensitization and restabilization. Don't need to get into it, but it's a specific trauma therapy. So if you're someone with PTSD or really some significant trauma, that may be a super important factor for you to consider. Other people are are really like, uh, they're more like a logical type. They like homework and they feel like they're dealing with thinking problems and they're in their head a lot. So maybe CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, you want to find a specialist in that. Recovery and addiction, which all three of us specialize in. If you have substance abuse issues, it's really important to get someone who's very proficient mm-hmm. in working in addiction and recovery. So those would be the three areas that I think are important to consider before you make your decision. Yeah, I think that's on. amazing. Anisha, what do you think of that? Structure? I agree with those. You know, there's something you said in there that kind of, I was like, huh, what do you think about the idea of if you've had problems with a male in your life, a father figure, grandfather, it might be that you would choose a female because you are untrusting of men, right? So I, mm-hmm. I, I was just thinking about the gender issues and how that could go either way. But mm-hmm. I agree with all of those things. I think thinking about your issues is probably the best way to start thinking <laughs> about therapy. What mm-hmm. is it that I want to work on? What is the style that I need? If I am perpetually someone who knows that they let themselves off the hook, maybe I need somebody who's going to hold me accountable, somebody who's a little more structured, giving homework, things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. You sit and you think about all these things. What are the issues I need to work on? Then you try to match that up with a therapist who has the skills to work on and, and that's an area too, right? Does this therapist have the skills to work on what I need help with? Mm-hmm. And so that kind of interview process where we're interviewing them to see mm-hmm. if we're a good match and they're interviewing us, what kind of credentials do they have? Do you want a psychologist? Do you want a psychiatrist? Do you mm-hmm. want a therapist? Do you want a counselor? And then when you do that interview, can you look at this person's face? Can you? <laughs> I'm serious. Can you listen that's to funny. their voice? That's My funny. My first therapist, not going to throw under the bus, loved her, but she sounded like Julia Child. Oh, no. And so when I would be thinking about our sessions, it's like, oh, yeah. Can you think about the issues that led you to therapy? And it's like, I loved her. She was helpful, but that voice was. That's oh, and so as silly as it sounds, yeah, it needs to be someone that you can sit across from every week for f- at least 50 minutes yeah. and <laughs> someone that you feel that they have unconditional positive regard for you, right? Mm-hmm. If you think someone's judging you. What's that, Unconditional positive regard. Yes. What does that mean? So that is, if I am working with you and I'm your therapist, I am seeing you in a positive light and I am reframing the negative things that you're bringing to our session in a positive way for you to be able to see that 
the things that you consider defaults are actually ways that you survived. Yeah. And so that unconditional positive regard is someone looking at you and it's kind of like unconditional love, right? I'm going to mm. support you no matter what. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try to help you no matter what. And I'm going to frame these things that you see as weaknesses as ways that you survived and got here. I want to add one little thing about the reframing thing. Mm -hmm. Patients, they come in, they love to complain. I said, look, your problems are a measure of how successful you are. It's like, oh, you're having a fight with mm. your husband. Oh, you're married. Right. <laughs> your kids are mad at you. Oh, you, you have children. So you are able to have kids. You can afford to have a house with love kids that. in them. Mm -hmm. You did that. Well, you, you know what? Mm -hmm. They're going to fire me from my job. So they, someone hired you at some point. <laughs> say? I love that. You, <laughs> anyway, I just wanted to add I that like in. That. Um, we're throwing around a lot of terms. And one of the things I wanted to get into, you guys are saying like CBT, DBT. How, how, mm. No one knows what CBT is. It's mm -hmm. just alphabet soup to them. They right. hear it and they're like, what is that? Is it CBT plus? Like, no, it's not a CBT <laughs> <Right>. plus. 2.0. 2.0. Like, like, what's going on here? Um, do I have to add letters to it at some point? How do they chew through that? I got an idea. Okay. I feel like if you were to throw out a hypothetical client or two, right? then Anisha and I could say what type of therapy we think might mm. be best for that client and describe what that therapy means and, and okay. such. What do you think about that? Let's do it. Just it came to me. I'm spitballing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Somebody stop me. All right. No, that's good. And then we can rope in these three things that you worked on, which is uh, basically demographics, the transference piece, to the gender transference stuff. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. was the second one. And the third one was their specific issues and the, this philosophical orientation of the, of the therapist. All right. So, and I guess any of us can do that, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. I'll throw out one. Y'all throw out one. Ooh, this is going to be fun. Yeah, yeah. I like it. Um, so <laughs> let's see. Um, I'm going to make uh, a female. She's 26 years old. Her name is Jay. Is that a female name? It can be. You can put a D in there. And just Jade. 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 That's Ooh. better. Okay. Her name is Jade. And uh, she's got bright blue hair, piercings, gorgeous tattoos on her legs and arms. She's a go-getter, very extroverted, kind of a people pleaser, but has some deep trauma issues from her childhood with her an uncle. Something happened. We don't really know what. Wasn't good. And sometimes she has panic attacks when she's mm -hmm. on a date and or she gets intimate or close to anybody she starts getting very anxious and she tends to push people away she, she's one of those people that is so together it's kind of shocking when she comes unwound and it shocks herself i would suppose she suddenly realizes she goes on a date and she's like has another thing happen and she's like oh my god i can't this this something i need to do something we're talking sexual trauma i'm assuming yeah okay. mm -hmm. sounds like it yeah i feel like you have that sensory motor training i feel like this would be a good one for you yeah i yeah. mean obviously we're talking about someone who has trauma obviously it's too early to tell if jade has ptsd or not because she's very high functioning um so what am i am i a friend am i who, who? she's listening to the podcast yeah okay it's a call-in show she's it's a call-in show call jade in wants show. to know what kind of therapist so mm -hmm. i am thinking that she sounds like she's having some problems staying inside her window of tolerance that her central nervous system is offline which is why she's having these panic attacks and why she's having these adverse reactions when she gets too close to people so from a somatic standpoint we're going to want her to see a problem yeah what is somatic Oh, great question. <laughs> and we're sorry to I'm sorry, I apologize right. for interrupting. Yeah. No, so yeah, let's those just, are a lot of words. This is my second time, so <laughs> I know, I know that words. I have to define all my terms. What, yeah. is, what is somatic? This is therapy for trauma that is of the veins of Peter Levine and... Um, um, Gina Fisher. Gina Fisher. Janina Fisher. Around the idea that trauma is something that is held in the body. You know, you could have talk therapy for years and you may still have this trauma locked in your body from Jade might have this trauma from childhood that's locked in her body and that that affects how she operates in the world and it affects her central nervous system and it affects the ways that she is in communication and relationship with other people. So coming from a somatic standpoint, we would want to be trying to release that trauma from the body through various different techniques. That's not the only trauma therapy. For someone like Jade, I don't think we would be recommending EMDR. I don't typically try to use EMDR yeah, if it's complex for PTSD complex okay. and complex kind of like developmental trauma. Am I still throwing out too many terms? Um, no, it's okay. <laughs> so I'm just going to pause. Um, so mm -hmm. so EMDR is a therapy that's, you do this thing where you-, you want me to do it? I'm trained in EMDR. Mm -hmm. Yeah, please. Yeah. What is EMDR? Um, so backtrack super quick. Window of tolerance is- the emotional range at which you can tolerate the feelings in your body. And if at any point the emotions that are coming into your body are too much for you to tolerate, you'll either become hyper aroused, which is flooding and just getting super emotional, kind of decompensating that way, or hypo aroused, which is numbing out 
just disconnecting from your body, dissociating. Yeah. So on the far scale of that, we have dissociation, whereas on the hyperarousal, you have like mania, excitement, anxiety. And so that's a good way for us to assess. If somebody has a lot of trauma, they will often get outside their window of tolerance. So it's a good way for you to know if you have trauma. Sometimes if you're either feeling like mm-hmm. whenever something happens emotional, you're either getting hyper aroused or hypo aroused. And you can't regulate. You can't emotionally regulate. You just never know when it's going to start storming in your mind. Yeah. Like something crazy happens to me and I get into a car accident and I step out of my car and I'm pretty calm. Like this sucks. You know, no one's hurt. Right. This sucks. You know, we have to deal with insurance. Right. But someone who's not emotionally regulated gets out. They're screaming. They're histrionic, even though no one's hurt. And it's really not that bad of damage. They're freaking out. Right. Right. And so that's an inability to emotionally regulate. Mm -hmm. Okay. Or it can happen in much more subtle ways in relationship. It can just be with a coworker. Very often in romantic relationships where on the surface, it seems like nothing really happened. But after that date or that experience, you're either inconsolably upset, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you're you're totally numbed out, you can't feel anything. And it's really confusing. And then people shame themselves, right? Right. Like, what's wrong with me? I just had this nice date. Right? Right? Mm -hmm. Jade probably would experience one of those two after her experiences because she doesn't realize that her trauma from her uncle sexually assaulting her is still impacting her today. Because she's so high functioning in all other areas of her life. Right. So EMDR. EMDR, what is so that? So EMDR, uh, totally blanking on the name of the woman who came Shapiro. up with it. Yes. So this woman was going through a divorce and would take these long walks on the beach and noticed that- New York, Central Park. Was that what it was? <laughs> wow. Wow. Thank you. It's so funny. It's like a game of th- know, telephone. For whatever reason, I heard that. But she noticed that she would actually feel better in a very different, more grounded way as if she had actually made progress um, around the issues that were coming up. She got really curious and and realized that her eyes were scanning a lot. It was these birds. She was watching these birds go back and forth. Huh. At least that's the story I heard. It's <laughs> so funny. I heard it was a beach. This is awesome. Anyway, bottom line is she just started tinkering with this and started um, using like a wand to have her clients follow and move their eyes. Long story short, she discovered and science has backed up that by engaging both sides of your brain, you're able to process traumas that are stuck in your body. My favorite piece of science around this is they did this experiment with mice where they um, they basically traumatized mice by ringing a bell and electric shocking them. Yay, science. <laughs> Yay, science. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then they had this chemical they could inject that wipes your short-term memory completely clear. And what they would do then is I want ring the bell. Yeah. <laughs> it's the men in black. Yeah, right? I'm, yeah, I'm surprised. You don't human- snort it? <laughs> <laughs> and we can talk offline. I know a guy. Yeah, I know a guy for it. Right, right. Um, so then they would ring the bell, inject the mouse, and then wait, you know, 10 minutes. And they rang the bell and the mouse acted as if it didn't even really know what a bell was. And what that shows us is that we can't hold things in both long-term and short-term memory store at the same time. You can only hold a memory in one place. Okay. With trauma, you'll bring up the memory. It impacts you as if you're still living in that memory. So you're 10, you're five, you're whatever. So you're there. You're mm-hmm, in it. Mm-hmm. That's why you get so dysregulated and outside uh. your window of tolerance every time it gets activated. Basically, trauma is something that's too much for you to process at the time it happens. Okay. And your survival mechanism is to just store it for later. The problem being we don't really have mechanisms for processing it later. It's a, it's a glitch in our, in our wiring, really. And so the memory comes up when you're triggered. You feel like you're seven watching your mom being beaten or something. I mean, that's pretty dark, but right. you know what I'm saying? And then it goes right back in your long-term store. So EMDR says... Bring it up into the in a very structured, safe, slow environment. We bring the trauma up. Mm-hmm. We access either through uh, hand buzzers, sounds, or your eyes. We get you to access both hemispheres of your brain. And what Dylan's talking about is bilateral stimulation. Thank That's you. the term. We yes. call it BLS. It's yeah. the moving of the eyes or sound or even tapping mm-hmm. bilaterally in the body. MDR is such a mystery to me. Mm-hmm. So why does accessing both sides of your brain help ameliorate the trauma that no is idea. the part that science can't explain <laughs> it's so funny because EMDR yeah. is an evidence-based scientific yeah. treatment but they cannot explain this one piece they think it has something to do with like rem sleep like literally they will wow. tell you this is a completely evidence-based protocol but they can't explain why <laughs> and that's i think fantastic. that's such an interesting well part i, I of can the, i can throw out my little 
two-bit theory, mm -hmm. the basic thing about therapy is, is internal movement. So with physical therapy, if you've got an injury, your body atrophies around that area and you compensate by like moving your left leg more mm. and your left leg gets more, or your left leg gets more muscle mm -hmm. and then your mm -hmm. body gets out of whack. And what a physical therapist does is they go in and they move the energy around. They, mm. they, they make you use that leg and use the stuff and move the blood and get things going so that your mm. body can do its thing. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine the psyche is any different, that things get stuck, like you said, yes. stuck in one department mm -hmm. or another and mm -hmm. that move, and, and, I, and I, there's no science to back up what I'm saying. I just, I, I, it's got to be healthy to access the whole of something. Right. It has to be. Absolutely. How could it not be? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I believe that's what EMDR does. At least the EMDR that I've done like personally right. for myself, mm -hmm. it's like the trauma is still there. The yeah. trauma that I remember is still there. It's that R in EMDR. It's been reprocessed. Mm -hmm. So right. before where I was seeing this kind of violent, horrible situation as a kid and right. I'm there and I'm scared. Now I see how the adults in the situation just didn't know how to communicate and okay. didn't know how to handle their stuff. That's awesome. So back to Jade. So here's what I'm thinking about Jade. If Jade or her friend came to me, I would say, well, it's of those three categories, for most important for Jade, because trauma seems to be her main issue, would be the orientation. Mm -hmm. She needs a trauma-based specialist, which can be EMDR, mm -hmm. sensory motor, um, somatic, somatic experiencing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a brain spotting. There's yeah, a few there's others, a, there's but many more. That yeah. would be the the, mo the top priority. I would say second for Jade would be a female therapist. Yeah, because it'd be too much. Um, you can play with that either way in terms of like Anisha was saying, well, maybe you want to work with somebody you're more comfortable with. More than likely, Jade's probably not going to want to since she's yeah. having trouble dating. Yeah, and, and we're right. talking about, and I, one of the things I just want to mention, because I am doing this podcast with two white males, is we did not hear Jade's sexual, well, we, we assume that she's having dates with men. Right. We assume that she's white. I, I don't see a lot of people color with bright blue hair, but they could. <laughs> they yeah. could. But these are all things that as a therapist, you're going to take into consideration. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. What do you think, Ben, you got to tell us, gender, Gender was, in my mind, was female. Sexual orientation was open. I didn't really ah, actually. I was uh -huh. like, because it's cisgender. Then I'm assuming. I, I don't know. Don't mess this up. Ben. I'll say cisgender just to make it yeah. simple. And okay. I hate that term, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but we're in Marin County, so we have to use it anyway. So then <laughs> you're in so much trouble. Right now. That's okay. Trouble. I don't mind. Um, um, but I, I did, I think white, I was kind of doing a composite of like five or six people that I knew. Mm -hmm. um, I was um, getting an Asian vibe. Oh, <laughs> yeah, see, no. Yeah. None of us should be making any assumptions, but these might be important to Jade. It's ironic that we were saying this is one of the key factors and we hadn't brought it up. Right. Yeah, it's so super important. For so what I, implicit what I want to um, kind of clarify about the safe so we have like the therapist that doesn't occupy the sort of the face and the the image of the abuser or the trauma and then you have the therapist that does and the first one is pretty obvious it's it's safer feeling and so you can drop in faster the second one is a reparative experience so i've had female patients come to me because right. they have trouble mm. with men mm -hmm. yes and presumably i'm a nice person and I've heard that you might be. I might be. <laughs> um, that's a thing. For instance, Jade might do EMDR with uh, a female Asian cisgender, uh, whatever, therapist for, let's say, uh, five years or three years or whatever it is, and then possibly move on to male therapist mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in the future. Absolutely. But only very, very carefully and only with the help of her current therapist. So this is a thing like you sometimes patients will move on. I've had several patients that have discharged because I'm like, you're not getting anything out of this anymore. We've done our thing. You need to move on. And here's three therapists that I recommend based on your profile. Who do like more psychoanalytic, like long-term? Or, or whatever. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes I've discharged people because I felt they needed more trauma work that mm -hmm. I just was not cut out for. Like, or we hit a snag because it was like, you, you know, you've been sexually assaulted and you're not able to talk about it because I'm a guy. So this is not good for you. Um, you're wasting your time and money. Uh, did you want to add anything on Jade? Anything else, um, Anisha? I guess something we haven't mentioned, but, you know, we've talked about gender. We talked about, um, you know, interestingly enough, I read something the other day that said that the biggest factor of discrepancy between therapist and client that makes a difference is socioeconomic status, which I okay. thought was very strange because how do you know how much money your therapist makes? And, right. But, because but anyway, you know how much you pay them. Right. And then right. I read, <laughs> boy, that's true, right? <laughs> that's a that's good funny. point. That's funny. Um, and then I read yeah. something else that said the biggest factor is do they look like them? Do they trust them? So mm. I don't know if all these are true because I think it's different for every person. Right. But I think Agreed. in Jade's case, we're going to want to bring it back to also financial issues. 
issues, right? Mm-hmm. What can she afford? True. Insurance, yeah. private pay, those yep. are other yep. issues mm-hmm. that have to yes. be considered yes. when thinking about finding mm-hmm. a therapist. I would say that's actually probably a fourth category. Yeah, it's yeah, a big and one. I feel like that's a almost... Can we address that for a few minutes? I think that's incredibly important. So to all of you out there, there are three ways that paying a therapist goes. One is out of pocket, which means you just, you know, you pay them the ton of money that they ask for out of your pocket. And the second one is insurance. So in other words, your insurance company has a list of therapists that they send you and they say, hey, here's a list of underpaid um, probably a a full caseload, uh, embittered, burnt out therapist that you can choose from that won't return your call. And and they'll see you in a year. Yeah. And the third option, (laughs) or if you're Kaiser, they'll see you once a month and they have a caseload of like 80. And then the third option is having your insurance cover what's called out of network individual therapy. And I worked at Bayside with the fabulous Anisha. I was working in the office, much to the chagrin of the other people working there, but I learned a few things. (laughs) And one of the things I learned was that insurance companies will reimburse once you meet your deductible of say 1000 2000 whatever it is they'll reimburse often a portion of your therapy and so what I do as a therapist when people call me they say do you take insurance I say no but the first thing I say is but I can submit what's called a super bill to you a record of our sessions you give that to your insurance company and you ask them these questions you say what is my deductible and what is your reimbursement rate for out of network therapy I, I have them write it down good. and I've noticed good. I've actually done really good business on that because people don't know these things yeah. right. and right. I had one woman call me She's like, well, I've been paying my psychiatrist for years. I don't know if I can afford a therapist. I said, well, does your insurance company reimburse for us? Because a psychiatrist usually gets, re- it's yeah. a doctor, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's like, well, I, I don't mean, what do you mean? I said, well, <laughs> call your insurance company and say these things. And I'll bet you she got a check for 10 grand. Yeah. Just out of that conversation. Probably. Mm-hmm. Probably. Because she didn't know. And his, their insurance insurance companies are basically criminals. They're not they, going to advertise it. They're not going to advertise <laughs> that. So I really walk people through the financial piece mm-hmm. very, very carefully. Mm-hmm. And what I also do is you can also ask a therapist for a sliding scale. Right. Right. They'll slide 20%, 30%, whatever it is. But my whole thing is that if you're going to come to me and pay me, you can't pay me so much money that it creates more anxiety than yep. the therapist <laughs> is, is, is yep. ameliorating. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So like, if I have a patient who loses their job, I will slash the rate yep. in half. Yep. Because that's the right thing to do, you know. I just Shut got up, a fist pound from Dylan. I'm sorry you lost your job, but it seems like you can no longer afford me. So good luck. Yeah, like- that's so fucked. <laughs> up. What you really need now is two sessions a week. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's my take on the financial Help you piece. Navigate this. Um, Anisha, did you want to add anything on that? Since um, you pretty much nailed everything I would have said yeah. about the financial piece, all the way down to what you would do if a client can't afford your sessions anymore. Dylan. So the irony is that most of the therapists that take insurance are generally newer to the profession mm-hmm. because they're trying to build up a practice. Those of us, the three of us, mm-hmm. aren't on insurance panels mm-hmm. no. and our practices are full. Mm-hmm. And that's because we are good. Mm-hmm. We're good at because what we do. Awesome. We have reputations. We are good and we live in affluent areas. Yeah. yeah. So and, yeah, like when right. people come to me and, you know, it's harder. A friend comes to me and says, I have this insurance. And maybe it's one of the insurances that's really like lower end. Horrible. It just, it sucks. And it's ironic that in our field, the most resource, lower socioeconomic people, people that have the the worst insurance have the least access to care mm-hmm. and it's hard mm-hmm. then there's the whole how do we deal with that in our own personal practices to find you know some kind of equity it's it's tough though because i what do you tell people who say i have this insurance um what should i do and you feel like Ugh, yeah. that insurance yeah, yeah. I've noticed the the lower the socioeconomic bracket, the harder it is to get them in the office because their lives are so chaotic usually mm-hmm. because they can't afford even to like walk out their front door. Right. And oftentimes the reason that they don't have a lot of money and a lot of resources is because there's something really, uh, several, several really serious issues going on mm-hmm. in their lives that are just causing all this chaos. Mm-hmm. And so I end up actually doing a lot more work for those folks, which I'm happy to do, mm-hmm. which I'm happy to do, but I have a hell of a time Keeping people, you know, uh, you know, charge them fifty bucks, twenty mm-hmm. bucks, five dollars. What can you afford? Come mm-hmm. on in. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard to get them in. Do you mm-hmm. have this experience? I have had that experience. Whether it's chaos in the family system, I have a job, I can't make it, I can't get away for an hour. I learned when I worked at Marin Services for Women, which was a very kind of a low socioeconomic facility for women in Marin County. It's defunct now, but. They said that, you know, when when people are getting treatment, you want them to contribute anything, whether mm-hmm. even if it's a dollar, right? Mm-hmm. Even if it's a dollar, have them pay something and that'll keep them coming. 
But I do find that when people are managing lower socioeconomic issues, like you said, there's more chaos, there's more stuff going on. Yeah. It can be hard. And I don't know that there is, I'm going to feel like a jerk saying this, but I, I guess in a sense, the more, the higher your socioeconomic status, am I going to say this? Maybe the more organized you are. I find yeah. that the people who it's, it's make true. the least amount of money that I'm willing to see will just be like, oh, I forgot. And I'm like, you yep. have a calendar? Like, yeah. <laughs> you're not putting everything in Outlook like me every single day. Like, <laughs> what are you doing? You well, know, and they're like, no, I'm seeing you on my phone. I don't yeah. have a computer, you know? Yeah. So it is hard. Yeah. It's, it's a hard thing. Yeah. yeah. Did we wrap up, Jade? I kind of feel like we did. Anisha, I was, you give us a case. Oh, I think we should. I gave a case. Great. Anisha's going to give us a case. And then Dylan's going to give us a case. Man. Wonderful. Okay. Do you need a minute? Um, let me know. I think I'm just going to shoot off. Let's see. We've got a 24 year old black male who is not really sure why he is calling for therapy, but mm. his girlfriend says he has to. <laughs> um, he uh. thinks everything is actually just fine, but she says he's got some issues he needs to work on. They were talking the other day and she he kind of pushed her and she said, you can't put hands on me, you need help. He doesn't think he has anger issues, but he does think he has some issues with his father who was quite angry and violent, but he doesn't think that really impacts him today. This mm -hmm. is just what his girlfriend said. He has a good job, stable job. He is willing to pay private pay and he's not quite sure what to do. And he's not very comfortable with white people. Mm. Okay, Dylan, you wanna start? Just to, for context, Anisha, would you define the term culturally competent therapist for us? Ah, yeah. I, I kind of associate this as well with like competent in the LGBTQIA, that you're aware of the issues, that you're an ally, that you're supportive of the issues. But the most important piece, I think, especially if you're someone who is not of the culture that you're talking to someone about and you're not, let's say, queer or gay, is that you are open to not knowing, that you are open to learning. And not that you want your client to come in and be a teacher, but that you don't have the stance of the know-it-all in the room, right? That you are very open to, hey, what's that like? I'll be honest with you. I wanted to find a black therapist who was a female who knew somatic stuff and also EMDR. And I wanted her to be a Marin. Mm -hmm. And I found myself several times. <laughs> several times. Funny. She does not exist. That's I am funny. here, but that <laughs> other woman does not exist. That's really hilarious. I found my therapist, Dr. Kate Brennan. Love you. Shout out. She is a white woman. Mm -hmm. And what happens when racial issues come up is she's like, huh. What was it like telling that to a white woman? She will sometimes bring up racial stuff that I haven't even thought of yet. And so to bring that to the table and to not shy away from it, to not skirt mm -hmm. around it, eggshell around it, is why I consider Kate to be a culturally competent therapist, even though she is a super white woman. Mm -hmm. She's open. She's accepting. She brings it to the surface. She doesn't shy away from it. And I think that's what it entails to be a culturally competent yeah. therapist. And I asked that because I think that would be great for this. What's this young man's name? That just for the sake, you're like, what do I say is the perfect name for a black guy that isn't but not too racist? His name. That it, oh, it's a real guy. That's <laughs> awesome. I thought you were thinking like, what's we'll not? What's like a black name, but not like right. too black of a name? <laughs> we'll call him. Dominic. 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 Like nice. That. All right, Dom. Can nice. I go with Dom? Call him Dom. All right. All right. Nice to meet you, Dom. So. If I was Dom's friend or maybe his girlfriend's therapist mm -hmm. and wanted to help, I would love to find him a younger heterosexual black male therapist that has some experience um, working with people with anger issues. And tell us why you would want a younger heterosexual did you say black male therapist? Yeah, mm -hmm. because uh, kind of going into these issues of transference and, and just comfort level. Mm -hmm. In my experience, especially with young black men, they're experience in the world there can be some distrust with white men i think that when you're dealing with anger as a primary issue oftentimes a male works better with a male um, because they feel like they're just understood you don't have to explain you just automatically feel there's a lot you don't have to explain you come into the experience saying you, you're just by looking at you i feel like i can assume that i don't have to explain a lot and can i add that also like i've, I've had a female therapist in the past and I felt 
some trepidation about bringing up anger issues with her mm. because I didn't want to offend her or yeah. scare her. And that was all my oh, shit. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Which is why for you, it was good to work through that with a female therapist. Yeah. Right. Possibly. Yeah. Possibly. Yeah. Time. I love that you said that. I think it it is astonishing the level of trust that is missing with black people and white people, you know, and obviously we know it goes back 400 years and continues to be an issue today. Mm -hmm. But I love that you said that, that he is going to need, there's going to be trust issues. He's mm -hmm. going to need someone that can mirror him, someone that looks like him. I don't know if male's the best choice because he's got mm -hmm. the issues with his dad, right? But that would be his choice, right? Yeah. He could tell whoever, whatever mm -hmm. therapist he's looking for, mm -hmm. what he's looking for. Yeah. But I That's like that. True. And the reason I originally said what's culturally competent is because there's very few therapists that match this description. I know too. <laughs> right. And I've been doing this almost a decade. Right. For instance, I see younger black, Latino, and Asian males mm -hmm. in my practice. And you do very well. I've worked well with really them. hard to be culturally competent. Mm -hmm. And so if I was Dom, I would ask, I would just straight up ask the therapist. How many young black men have you worked with before and how did that go? That's a good question. Um, because so I'm, the, I'm like you. I just say, mm -hmm. first session, I'm white. Right. Mm -hmm. What's I that mean, like And I you? referred yeah. to you, someone yeah. who was a person of color that really yeah. wanted a person of color. And I was like, well, he's not. <laughs> I mean, you, if you consider Jewish, color, fine. But, <laughs> yeah. but he it's is a thing, culturally but competent. It's not a color. And yeah. I think yeah. it worked out. Yeah. I think he really liked he's, you. Uh, yeah, he's heading to treatment uh, oh, this next week. Yeah, awesome. He's going fantastic. I love that guy. Not going to say his name, though. Shout out, you know who you are. So what we're talking about is when you call a therapist, usually when someone calls me, I do a 15-minute interview with mm -hmm. them. You know, I don't charge them or anything like no. that. I encourage them to ask me as many questions as possible. So what we're talking about here is what questions do you want to fire out at yeah. your at this mm -hmm. potential therapist on the phone for about 10 minutes? Yes. And, and of course, one is have you seen such yeah. a, have you seen people like me? This exactly. is who I am. Have yes. you have you worked with people like and, and how did that go? Mm -hmm. Have you seen people like me and have you worked with people with my issues? And Perfect. how did that go? Yes, 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 yeah. yes, yes. And how what do you do with experience people? Experience do you have? Yeah. 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 And what does your process look like? Like when people come to see me or talk to me, I say, look, this is my process. I do hardcore case management at the outset of therapy. I make sure that all the fires in your life are more or less out mm. because there's no point in doing therapy. The complicated if, houseplant theory. Right. What? We talked about the complicated houseplant last time, remember? Which is like, are you watering yourself? Are you getting sunlight? Oh, right? I like this. Making sure that a person is doing their basic self-care case management. Yeah, well, self-care, but like no. I offended not, you, Ben. No, no, you didn't. Oh, I was, you like, hear that? I was, I was trying to remember complicated houseplant. <laughs> wow. Um, I, mentioned, I mentioned this at our during This is our a man last. who kills his houseplants, obviously. Uh, <laughs> I've seen it. <laughs> so, I was... <laughs> So, <laughs> Anisha and I've shared an office for so, years. Anyway, anyway, you put out all the you, not just not just self care, but just, like let's say they have a major PTSD issue. I'm not going to get into longer term mm, deep mm -hmm. deep analytic therapy if they're having panic attacks. Like, do they need to go see a doctor? Yeah. Do they need to? Right. Do they need to detox? Do they need to blah 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 mm -hmm. blah? Anyway, and then as we get to know each other, things start to expand. I get into family issues. I do family mm -hmm. systems work. I explain what that means. I even do dream analysis, but maybe that's not for you. Mm -hmm. I talk about motivational interviewing like I can be super goal oriented and like this is what you want and depending on what they need so I describe very concretely the kinds of uh, modalities that I employ and what that is and what mm -hmm. it actually means so that they I kind of give them a little lecture yeah. and that's yeah. how I do it same great yeah. yeah you didn't say about Dom what you would do um I feel like you kind of Got it. He's a tough one because he doesn't present any issues. Yeah. Right? Like, I'm fine. I'm just here so I won't get fined. Yeah. yeah. Like, maybe he needs a couple yeah. therapists. <laughs> I, think, I think he's also a guy who probably doesn't believe in therapy. He's got to buy into the process. One of the things that Dom would need to understand is that he's got to give the therapy a chance. Like, he's got to give it, like, six sessions mm -hmm. or ten sessions mm -hmm. or whatever That's it is. That's a good point. A lot of people think that therapy is, especially you see this a lot in, in recovery, where they think the family sends somebody into treatment and they think it's like sending the car into the shop. Right. It's not that. It's right. a long process. You're not going to just keep fixed. So a lot of folks like Dom, who's young, and thinks, well, I put hands on my girlfriend and I've got these anger issues. Okay, maybe I accept that. Okay, and I'll just go see this therapist for three times to make everybody happy. Mm -hmm. And then I'll be fixed too, maybe. So Dom needs to come to a better understanding of the process of therapy and buy into it. Mm -hmm. I would say that that would be part of his therapy. Yeah. Someone like Jade, I think, would be like, okay, yes, please put me in therapy. Right. Whereas Dom be like, mm -hmm. right. and how does Dom get there? I think Dom mm -hmm. would need a therapist who would not 
push back too much mm-hmm. at first. If he's ambivalent, that therapist would need to be very reflective, not too confrontational. I have a hard time with that because I'm a very confrontational mm-hmm. therapist. Mm-hmm. So I have to really shut my mouth. And like, I actually will sit on my, I will kind of like put my hand on my, <laughs> my chin. Hold it close. Like, I'm not going to talk here. So like every time, every for every word I don't say, I give myself a point. Oh, nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. You know? What's your uh, high score? My, my uh, seven. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So, um, no, uh, yeah, so that that would be my thing. Do you think motivational interviewing, in a sense, would be good with Dom? So motivational interviewing is when you <laughs> to ask the, the person, like like someone says, well, I want to become a doctor and go to medical school. I'm like, wow, okay. So motivational interviewing is you ask questions of the patient about what they believe it would take to get to that point and what obstacles are in the way. So you ask them questions. So they answer those questions. It's like I'm interviewing the person, but the questions are pointed in the sense of like, how are you going to drive yourself towards mm-hmm. that goal? So the person kind of participates and invents their own plan mm-hmm. to get into medical school. Right. There's right. a stage before that, though. That's when they're in pre-contemplation. So change, is, right? You're yeah. looking for change. So it's like, what do they need to change to get? So I, I mainly employ this in substance abuse and process abuse addiction. But for somebody like this, engaging in the process of emotional work okay. uh, is what I think they need and what their girlfriend thinks they need, but they don't think they need it. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of working with that ambivalence and asking them to say, what's working for you about how you currently are interacting with your girlfriend and your relationship with yourself and how you relate to your emotions? Mm-hmm. And they'll be like, well, it works for me really well in this way. And I mm-hmm. say, well, what isn't working for you about it? You know, I see. Or what does your girlfriend say about it? Well, you know... Sometimes I feel a little down or, mm-hmm, or sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, my anger gets the best of me and I my, you know, I really love my girlfriend and, and I say, huh, so on the one hand, you're telling me here's what's working for you about it. And on the other hand, you're saying this isn't what's working for you about it. What do you make of that? I see. And you just kind of let them, because right. it's the same thing. They're generating it. That's in that early stage right. before they right. say, I want to change this. Right. And then you say, what do you think it would So there's no stated goal. It's kind of like, you know, the goal as a therapist, you haven't really stated like, <laughs> hey, maybe you should stop. <laughs> Bring uh, them to the well. Hitting your girlfriend yeah. and yeah. being a prick. Yeah. Like, Maybe dude, you should don't do that. And then those questions, like on a mm-hmm. scale of one to 10, mm-hmm. like where are you with not putting hands on your girlfriend? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Hey, what do you guys think? I just thought about something that we also haven't talked about, and I don't know how much it comes up in Marin or the Bay Area, but religion and spirituality mm. I've had that question once when I was working for a lower socioeconomic facility. I saw a woman in her home who was disabled. She really wanted to talk about my religious beliefs, and it seemed really important to her. And um, I don't really have a lot of religious beliefs. I probably consider myself to be agnostic. But when you are managing, especially a lot of Black cultures and populations, there is going to be mm-hmm. that piece. I think that's something that, you know, I don't know if it's for Jade or for Dom or whoever, right. but that is just something else to maybe mm-hmm. think about when choosing a therapist. And also, I don't know how open you guys are when people ask you questions like that. Yeah, I'll tell you what I do. So a long time ago, in 2008, when Altamira is a residential treatment center in Sausalito, and it kind of was... Shout out to what? Altamira. Shout out to Altamira. Yeah, you worked right. there too. I worked there too. Everyone, I went there. I think everyone so, is. Yeah. Oh, you okay, went there. Oh, you all, actually. We uh, all have been there. You, you went there. Um, yeah, and I was working under the uh, auspices of the fabulous Krista Gilbert. Oh. Do you know who she is? Yeah, she came back. She was the CEO. When yeah, I left and now a she's years like ago. now she like owns every rehab in in the world. Um, <laughs> she's amazing. Anyway, so back then I was really anti-religion. Like I thought, religion, you know, and, and just the whole, I just was like spirituality, new age crap, religion, it's all in one big bucket and I'm going to go piss on it. Like, <laughs> and I thought I had won the lottery, by the way, by getting this job because it's like Altamira is like, it's palatial. It's like you can see Angel Island, you can see Alcatraz, there's a mm-hmm. big deck. It's incredible. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I wasn't a therapist. I was a, uh, I was a basically a, like a, an intern. I was like a, not even an intern. I was like a, you know, tech tech go go do things go go drive these people <laughs> and i get there and someone walks up to me and hands me these keys and i'm like what am i what are you handing me these keys well you're driving the clients to church I'm like what <laughs> like not only do and like in the van like not only do i not really know how to drive a van but i hate church <laughs> and they're like and not only are you driving the van to church but the church is across the golden gate bridge in san francisco in the tenderloin oh, and there's no parking so you have to find a valet and deal what? with all that and not lose the patients in the tenderloin which is yeah. full of drugs and alcohol so make sure nobody relapses okay so i was like this really sucks i hate church i hate all this this my life is over but i so I managed, I, I drove into the city, I valet parked, 
and we got nobody went got heroin and we got yeah. into the church it's it's called um glide glide memorial and i walked in there and it was like a party man mm. like there was no cross on the wall yeah. and they were like we love everybody we want you atheists and republicans and liberals and and catholics and we take everybody and they, they had a band and a choir and they had you know people modeling clothing and prancing up and down the wow. stage and there was birthday cake for some fucking reason <laughs> and there was like a thousand people and it was just the most incredible i'm like oh this is what church is supposed mm-hmm. to be yeah. that was my transformation <laughs> and it happened in about 20 minutes mm-hmm. and i was like i've been full of shit for years mm-hmm. and ever since then i have had a lot more respect for religion and spirituality. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I see religion as basically super organized spirituality, basically. It's like it's taking this, the revelations that you have as a spiritual person and putting them into some order so that you can form a culture and a, and a kind of a process. Anyway, that's another, another discussion. But what I do now is that when somebody has a belief, I step into it completely. I believe it. Hmm. with them if someone talks to me about jesus i'm talking about jesus mm-hmm. and i understand that's probably not for everybody because jesus can represent some pretty horrible things for a lot of folks mm-hmm. who have had some pretty hard connection with with the church or if they're into buddhism i step into buddhism i'll try to be culturally what was the word competent competent mm-hmm. and like ask questions and kind of figure it out um but it's far as i'm concerned uh, someone's connection to a higher power is really a connection to self that a buddhist and a catholic priest and an atheist they all do the same thing they if they're all spiritually inclined the catholic priest will pray the buddhist might meditate and the atheist might also meditate or do gardening or whatever but it's all a connection to something deeper and as far as i'm concerned it's all the same shit and i felt that palpably all those years ago like it's all the same oh my god it's all the same everyone's believing the same thing and they don't even know it and and that's what i bring that's how i do it my speech is over Mm. i like that i like the idea of stepping into it with the client it reminds me of my grandmother the idea of heaven and hell to me are kind of like cartoons in a yeah. sense but my grandmother bless her heart she raised me she died about 12 years ago she could not wait to get to heaven and god forbid if somebody asked her where my grandmother is she's in fucking heaven like that go. is where she is <laughs> awesome. and i don't know if that exists but that's where she is so god forbid god forbid god forbid, <laughs> god forbid. <laughs> exactly <laughs> so how do you manage it when you when you someone comes to you with stuff that you're like uh it's kind of cartoonish I, huh, that's a really good question. I never want to be fake or phony or inauthentic, right? Mm -hmm. But I do step into it with them. And if I don't know something, I will ask like, okay, well, with your beliefs, how does this work for you? Um, With your religion, how does this work for you? And I noticed that when you have that stance, you rarely get the like, well, do you believe in God? You know, it's Mm -hmm. like if you're open to whatever, Uh no one really questions. And I find that I got more of those questions when I worked with populations that were more um, lower socioeconomic, which unfortunately also was more culturally diverse. Dylan, how do you manage this issue? I'm not religious. I don't want to say I'm the most spiritual, but I might be the most okay with talking about God Mm -hmm. actually in my life in a very, very uh, general way. I, I don't... I'm not religious, but I, I'm very much spiritual. And, and also the research shows that having a higher power or religion or anything in your life is a great resource for Absolutely. people. Yeah. And so I immediately, Absolutely. when the people bring it up, I, I go there first and say, that's fantastic. You know, the research shows that people with faith tend to do better in therapy. Um, is that true? I mean, it's when you take your community mental health class, when you're assessing a client to see what their resources are, mm-hmm. this is a important resource. And if they bring it up, you want to help them to nurture that, put energy into it and lean on it. Okay. Um, so I don't know that there's a specific study I can point to that says like, you know, you will do 20% Well, it's, I mean, it's community, therapy, yeah. right? I mean, regardless of how far on the spectrum they are of like cult or just, you know, going to church, mm-hmm. it's community, it's faith, it's hopefulness. I mean, there's a lot of aspects that come with spirituality and religion that I think are very positive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's how I sell uh, Alcoholics Anonymous to people say, I hate religion. I don't want to go to right. AA. And it's like, bro, it's... <laughs> It's a community, accountability, structure, and faith in the process. It doesn't, it doesn't have anything to do with God. Are it's people just, out there still saying that? If you need help and you're not going to AA because you think you're not religious, you are really fucking it up. Oh, snap. <laughs> well said. Well I mean, said. Yes, I hear it all the time. Yeah. I hear it all the time. Just, this is this would be a nice segue into my client. Oh. All right. My client. Your client. Um, all right. And since since this is a San Francisco based podcast, I'm gonna give you my number one San Francisco client composite. Okay. Which is the early fifties <laughs> gay man, cisgender, meth addict who has a cross addiction with sex. I know him. 
Yes, we all we all have had this fun. Um, <laughs> had several of him. Yeah, several of him. They're tough, man. Yeah. Um, we're gonna call this guy um, Travis. Oh, I like that. So Travis is like fifty. He works in tech. Duh. Mm-hmm. Uh, he uh, <laughs> he generally uh, he makes a good salary in tech. Historically, you know, he also comes from like the Midwest or the South or something. Relocated here. Picked up. Uh, meth through Grinder. What is Grinder? Grinder is uh, is the um, hookup sex app for gay men. And so uh, this is the story I hear a lot: is you know people are just living their life in you know in San Francisco and everything's generally okay, kind of going along, making a living, boyfriends here and there, sex here and there, and then eventually they're hooking up with some guy and the guy offers a meth and they go, what the hell? Why not? The, the guy's not? like, this is gonna make sex so much better. Oh, you got to do it. They try it. The sex is absolutely astronomical best sex of their life yeah and then they go i want to do that again yeah and next thing they know they're addicted to methamphetamines hooking up left and right um, sometimes like dozens and dozens of people on a weekend yeah sex produces like 500 units of something or other in the brain i don't know serotonin or mm-hmm. dopamine or oxytocin it, it's, some, it's something else it's not that sexy but, neurons <laughs> but but methamphetamine adds a thousand to right. that wow <laughs> yeah wow <laughs> and it's so the most powerful cross addiction i've ever yeah, experienced yeah working. because not only does it open them up to just sex but a lot of them are like it just they, they feel liberated they feel it's disinhibiting just totally like they can suddenly come out and be themselves in mm-hmm. heavy quotes and talk to anybody and do anything and it just it's so it's it's so releasing and i think also just the stigma of being gay suddenly you don't give a fuck it's just right. <laughs> right. well and i think with a lot of um gay men what i've noticed is that especially in san francisco there's enough community and there's enough you know there's just like a lot of people really <laughs> thrive with community friendships work finances right. and a lot of the deeper shame and issues that came from growing up in nebraska with religious parents mm-hmm. get shoved because there's just enough good going in their right. lives and then somehow addiction sneaks in and, and finds that dark empty yeah. hurt place inside them and fills that hole and next mm-hmm. thing you know the addiction takes over and then when you get them in treatment yep. you have to then attend to that that tender dark place inside them that's never gotten attention can i add a little chunk the analogy that i use for addiction is pretend you've got two people one is in a cold environment right one is a little heavier a little stockier built for the cold and the other one is kind of thin and the thin one has been in the in the environment so long they don't even know it's cold they don't even they don't even notice it but they and then you throw a couple sweaters in the dryer and you throw each of them the sweater who's going to enjoy the sweater more you know the the, the skinny guy right mm-hmm. so the delta between their normal state their unconscious normal state of pain mm-hmm. and the the relief is extreme right. so i think that with addiction people have are carrying these wounds and carrying pain anxiety depression don't even know it right and suddenly this substance comes along and takes them to the freaking mm. moon it mm-hmm. must be amazing yeah. it is ben it is and <laughs> <laughs> anyway yeah. um that's my little side piece on addiction so uh, we can all agree travis needs inpatient treatment how long 30 day minimum obviously 90 days is what we recommend right. as 90, the industry standard industry standard for all mm-hmm. people with severe drug addiction mm-hmm. but travis is getting out of 90 day treatment and uh, needs to reintegrate back into life, figure it out. And the, the whole reason I brought this up is we're talking about AA. We're talking mm-hmm. about these spiritual mm-hmm. communities mm-hmm. and what Travis is going to need to get into recovery and overcome this really debilitating addiction. And then when we look at these three areas, right, right. specialty, you know, kind of the male versus female therapist demographic or just this other demographic, how does Travis rank those things in choosing a therapist? Yeah. Anisha, what do you think? Well, I think what's interesting is that this might be the first case where there's just predominantly different cultural diversity issues. So it's like, does he want someone who's gay? Does he want someone who's a man? Or does he want someone who's experienced with addiction? Yeah. Because that is a question that I got asked more than not. Well, a lot as being an addiction therapist that is not someone who is suffering from addiction mm-hmm. from drugs or alcohol. And so a lot of times addicts want to know, yeah. have you been mm-hmm. here? Have you experienced what I'm experiencing? And my professional opinion is that you don't need to, to help them. Obviously I have to say that being an addiction specialist, that is not an addict, <laughs> that would be but it is something that I find more times than not addicts really want to know. And really that's going to be up to Travis, what he feels he needs. If he could find a gay male therapist who was also in recovery, boom, this is the kind of client that I would refer to you, Dylan, not because you're gay because you're not gay we're, we're uh, cut that part uh, but because you really work well with this clientele does travis have trauma emotional travis has what we call relational attachment trauma mm-hmm. having really felt completely 
alone and abandoned emotionally in his Nebraska Christian conservative family. Yeah, um, and he was and he was all he knew he was gay from a young age, kind of more flamboyant, teased a lot, and his parents told him like you know, man up, find Jesus. A lot of he might have even trauma, had um had right? that what's that horrible therapy called uh, conversion? conversion? Yeah, con- did he, he, get, might have, he had some did he, conversion. Did he get therapy. disowned? No, he left as soon as he graduated high school. He went to college, um, UC Berkeley. Super bright. You Do know his what parents I mean? still speak to him? They um, have a very fake relationship where uh, he only tells them what he thinks they want to hear. They don't really approve. They've they've changed a little bit. They know he's gay. His mom is in but, denial, though, isn't she? She still thinks he might convert and start dating women. She she wants grandkids. Who knows? I have you know. Yeah, Bertha is a piece of work. <laughs> But, um, <laughs> and Jedediah Bertha. will be the Jedediah will be the dead. Oh, Bertha um, Jedediah. <laughs> wow. Story as old as time. And so you know that's another issue because we talk about um, family systems is something you brought up too. And I think mm-hmm. uh, when anybody who works in addiction also needs to have experience and even a specialty in family systems mm-hmm. because addiction and family of origin yeah, are so intimately connected. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I would do um, these genograms, which genograms are basically Ah. circles are are women, squares are men. I'm not going to get into the cis thing. I'm just going to say that that's how that is. And then you you do this little graph on the thing. And And Bowen wasn't into the the, cisgender and pronouns. And so you, you basically do the generations and you map out the whole family three generations back and you can actually and you if you use like a red pen to like indicate addiction and trauma you can actually see the red flowing downhill from like a grandparent that like lost a child or hurt somebody or committed suicide and you can see you can see it's so obvious it's amazing yeah it's amazing what what would you say about travis if he's like super isolated because a lot of times gay men in their 50s and 60s they're no longer they're kind of thrown out by the gay community a lot of times and i've heard i just heard that they're old after 30 a client told me this a gay client told me he's like i'm turning so, 30 and then i'm old and i'm done and i'm like oh my god well because well, they're because they're so <laughs> wrapped up in, in image this is what i've i've been told right they're so wrapped up in image that they, they, they get and they get thrown out and they get lonely and mm-hmm. it's just it's it's the saddest thing Very and so a lot of these folks need to access community and so i recommend crystal meth anonymous and you can stand up at a meeting and say, you know, I'm so-and-so, I've got this thing, I'm also looking for a therapist. Does anybody here have an awesome mm-hmm, therapist? And mm-hmm. you can do that, and you will be how, you'll be swarmed at the end of the meeting. So uh, meetings are a really great way if you are in, uh, have a chemical dependency mm-hmm. issue to, to find a therapist, really. I Absolutely. Mean, I don't know if it's as saturated as psychology today, but just to throw it out there, there's also Lunesta for the gay and, you know, for the hmm. LGBTQI. What is Lunesta? It's like the psychology today for queer people. Really? For queer folks, yeah. I think that's what it's called. Oh my god, am I making that name up? Isn't it actually a I website? A I mean, that is a sleep yeah. med. <laughs> Let yeah, me make a- sure I'm not <laughs> making that up. Would you, uh, Ben? Would you see Travis? Would I see Travis of, coming out of inpatient ninety days? Yeah, in a second. How would you work with Travis in your practice? If Travis with Travis, I mean, I would work with him the way I'd work with any other patient who's coming out of treatment. I would make sure that he had a solid program, that he was going to meetings. That he What's had a, a program? A program oh, is okay. you go to CMA or AA or NA meetings, I would say five to six times a week. You get a sponsor and the sponsor is someone who helps you work the 12 steps of, of Alcoholics Anonymous or whatever piece you're in. And you practice rigorous self-care. You read the big book on a daily basis. You pray on a daily basis. You devote one to two hours per day to your recovery in some form every day if you can, if you possibly can. You keep three phone numbers in your phone of five or 10 of them of people that you call when you're craving. So I make sure that all that stuff's in place. I make sure that they have a doctor's appointment, that they see their doctor. Maybe maybe if they're an alcoholic too, get your liver checked out, get your blood levels checked. Mm -hmm. I make sure that uh, he has community. I mean, that part of AA and NA and all those things is is having friends around you, having human beings that you can like hug. I would, oh, what am I leaving out? I feel like I'm leaving something out. Um, that was pretty comprehensive. Yeah, just the, the basics, yeah. you know, and then really after a while, what I find is at the end of the day, like after when you really get to know somebody, the, the, the cultural and the sexual identity pieces, they are present and they are important. And once you form an authentic, deep relationship with a human being, it's human to human. And it's just mm-hmm, like, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm working. Because when I worked in treatment at foundations as a therapist, I had all these people come into my office that I never would have met in a million years. Uh, especially, you know, you know, like gay Asian men who it's, it's like, 
like like who are you like i don't i don't know anything about your mm-hmm. culture or your orientation nothing and i would interview them and ask some questions like you were saying earlier and after a while it just became me and that human yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. that's my experience well, how do you get from point a to point B. um okay right. so i I'm, I'm agreeing with you no I just, so one yeah. of the things i do is i i'm very trans i'm very transparent with my my patients if they want to know if i'm gay i'll tell them no i'm not if they want to know if you're a drug addict nope i'm not that's just me i'm very forthcoming about who i am and what i do on a daily basis and what kind of human being i am so i form that bond of trust yeah. so w- as a side note it's actually gay lesta <laughs> not <Yes. Lunesta. laughs> gay lesta it's gay lesta which is which is a little ridiculous sounding. Gay yeah, Lesta? It is, what is it that? Is. So it's a, it's a why, you can go I? to this website and you can find, this is where I think therapists who are queer of some kind would advertise themselves and people who are looking for someone queer can go there to find someone. Mm. Well, that's a, it's an awesome idea with a- With a crazy name. Yeah. Terrible yeah. name. I would, uh, I would say for Travis, it's most important that, that he has someone who's an addiction specialist before he finds someone who's male or gay or yes, mm-hmm. 100%. And, and the why, tricky part and why about this, do we feel that way? Well, hey, we feel that way because substance abuse <laughs> is. It, for those of us sitting at home, there's a dog in the room and he's yes, growling. You hear me? He's small, outside. growing at the dog outside. Yeah, in the room. dog outside, like, who's larger than he is and would yeah. eat him. Um, <laughs> You said, why would we look for someone who has substance abuse first? Yeah, so like uh, the three of us are addiction experts mm-hmm. and we have seen the train wreck of somebody who's not an addiction expert think that they can handle Travis. <laughs> oh, right. man. And so I think oh, it's boy. important that yeah. we address. Let's uh, talk about it. This, If you are Travis or someone you know is Travis and they go, I found this therapist. They're so great. This gay guy in his 50s and he's also from Nebraska. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and I, he's so cool and I just relate to him. And but he, this person is not an addiction expert. Why is this a really bad idea for Travis to choose this therapist? And why is this therapist quasi unethical to take this client? You really need to have experience in substance abuse to work with substance abuse clients. And I want to say this in the least derogatory way that I can. When I first started working in substance abuse, one of my supervisors told me, anytime a a client with addiction tells you they had two drinks, just double it, just four. So sadly, one of the symptoms of the disease of addiction is lying. That's not a judgment. It is sadly (laughs) just facts. damn fact. And if you are not someone who knows that and you're not experienced with that, you're going to take everything that they say at face value. And another thing I learned early working in, in substance abuse is, sure, they may very well be lying to you, but as opposed to like this person's lying, what's wrong with them, it's more like this is the truth that they need me to believe right now. And I kind of roll with that. Not like I believe it, but it's yeah. just like, okay, this is what I'm getting. So if you are still engaging in substances, in particular like meth, right, where mm-hmm. it's like really destructing your brain, you're not going to be able to do any other work. So if he's got a therapist who's not – addressing, aware, holding his client accountable, then all the other stuff is just kind of bullshit. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) Just, yeah. And the interesting thing is we're talking about what we would choose for Travis. That's the hard part, right? Because this podcast is about how you choose your own therapist and Travis might just be like, yeah, I like this gay guy from Nebraska (laughs) who is about my age and wants to work with me. Mm -hmm. And depending on where he is with his addiction, he may or may not want to be held accountable. The other perspective is that we've all known patients who've died you know many mm-hmm. right and once you've experienced that you there's a certain level of like when somebody comes in and they have a substance abuse issue and they start chiding you for like well i don't want to go to a meeting or I don't know, it's like you, you there's part of you that does not give one fuck about what they feel <laughs> and it's like i don't care how you feel or like when a parent comes to me and says my teenager wants such and such and such and such and maybe he's not ready for going away to the wilderness program like do you want your teenager to die mm. right and i can say that yeah. because i really don't want their teenager to exactly. die exactly and the other thing i want to say is that if you're finding a therapist who doesn't know about addiction and you have an addiction issue you are in a way committing suicide not not, yeah. not, not not as such but like you are you are asking for it yeah. yeah you are asking to die because you are you are enabling yourself j- just the way your friends enable you i, mm-hmm. almost, I actually almost died you did from that yeah yeah personal experience do you wish to i mean say my first real therapist uh was not an addiction specialist uh-huh. i was an addict uh-huh. um and that therapist saw me for years where i made no progress was steadily declining mm. and never would like I, rem- I remember this one time i lied and said i was sober because mm-hmm. i had tried to quit mm-hmm. pills mm-hmm. for a while and uh-huh. maybe it was like got off, you know i was never really sober but i think i like got off opiates for like a couple weeks or a month or something right and then was like are you like i came in one day and i remember he was like are you so are you still sober 
I was like, yeah. yeah, of course. He's like, God, it's been like six months. That's a really big deal. I'm like, hey, you know. And you know what I mean? I look right. back on that and I'm like, right. anybody who is even a quasi addiction mm-hmm. competent would see through that Absolutely. in a second. And and then when I finally got so went to rehab, got sober, I looked back on this experience and went, that was messed up. Yeah. yeah. Was and then your money. The, the cross addiction yeah. piece too. It's like, well, I've stopped. I haven't taken opiates in months. Are you still drinking? Oh, just, you know. Yeah, but it's just alcohol. Yeah, right. it's just alcohol. Yeah. Or it's just one. It's just one. Right? It's or, just one. Or, but yeah. you find out that one is a two liter. <laughs> my, my favorite is that, well, it's it's just white wine. It's just beer. Uh-huh. It's not liquor. Yeah. So it's not really drinking. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. You know. <laughs> oh, man. Here's the one that I think separates like an addiction specialist from a non is, you know, I'm. I don't really like AA meetings, but I love therapy. I think I'm just not going to do AA, but I'll see you twice a week. What do you think? Uh, the non-addiction specialist yeah. is like their ego pops up. Yeah, totally. And a lot of times yeah. that therapist is being is a pawn because they want to make their wife or husband or it's, child happy. We're enabling them. I mean, the therapist that takes that client on is mm. enabling them because they they're in treatment. They're yeah. getting help. They're yeah. working on their addiction. I've actually refused patients. Like, Should I, can I see you three times? Like, no, you need mm. to go to AA meetings. No. <laughs> like, I'd yes. love to take your money. But no, right. Because I'm your therapist, not your AA, not I'm your sponsor. And I'm not gonna, and I'm not gonna assassinate you. You know, right. it's like I, I could kill you, right? In a way, exactly. You yes. know. Um. Anyway, so yes. Dylan and Anisha, I really want to thank you guys for coming in, Dylan, for hosting me at your fabulous <coughs> Marin household, and um, Anisha for taking the drive out here and and bringing your your dog. What's his name? Biggie Smalls. Biggie, Biggie, you named your dog Biggie Smalls? Yeah, because he's, you know, he's 14 pounds, so he needs to be intimidating. Does he rhyme? (laughs) Oh, yeah, he rhymes. He He actually likes it when you call him Big Papa, but that's... Okay, okay. Um, uh, This has been really fun. I feel like I've had 10 espressos. uh, I did have a double shot, right? I didn't have any caffeine, and I feel like I'm full of caffeine. Three. Um, (laughs) If there's anything else you guys want to add? Well, uh, really, just the last thing I want to say is that this whole podcast has been about how to find and choose the right therapist, and I guess my, my suggestion is to choose and find one <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I need to do that myself i, I had a ther- same therapist for 30 years wow yeah he, he got pretty old which is fine he didn't really die he oh. left he left he left he uh, abandoned you that was no, some he, dark humor right there he abandoned you no he didn't abandon me he, he just left you no, and he died? left the world he, he, did, he stepped <laughs> out he's like you know what i'm done i'm 97 i'm out hey, wow um, jeez yeah so uh, I have, I'm having a hard time replacing him because. Of course. Um, yeah. Anyway, so that's my. I feel like we have to maybe do an entire podcast dedicated to helping you find. How to help you find, find a therapist. therapist. Yeah, you'll have a yeah. Well, you'll you'll have a easier time finding me a girlfriend, probably. I don't know about that. No. Me either. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a tough call. And thank you so much for having us. It Certainly. really has been yeah. fun. All right, guys. Love doing this. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. As always. Pertinent information regarding this podcast will appear in the program notes. Should you have any questions or wish to be a guest on my show, please drop me a line at benjaminrusick at gmail.com or go to my website at benjaminrusick.com. Thank you for listening. And remember, should you ever find that your plate is full, well, consider getting a bigger plate.